0: Good morning. good morning. All right, 9 a.m. service. You guys are the smaller service, the early service. You're still sleeping. I need more than that. I'm still tired, too. All right, you guys got to be awake for me. All right, Ecclesiastes 4. That was better. Whoever said that was good. All right, thank you, Lucky. I can always count on you. All right, so we're going to pick up an Ecclesiastes 4. Uh, we were just there. If uh, you're borrowing a Bible and you want to just, I've got the page number, it happens to be the same as my Bible, five, uh, page 555. So we're working through the wisdom literature, and uh, I'll kind of throw a curveball announcement to you this morning. Uh, we have been working all the way through the Old Testament, right? And you guys know that. We began roughly a year ago, I guess it was, and we, uh, when we were outdoors, we taught through the book of Exodus, and our community groups read through the first five books of the Bible, and then after Christmas, we got into First and Second Samuel, right? The, the rise and the fall of Israel, the kingdom, the kings and the prophets as God begins as, to lead his people in unique ways. Um, right now, we're doing kind of a, a quick snapshot of the wisdom literature, which is what we call practical theology. In other words, God's word for us practically in our daily lives. Uh, and then the rest of the Old Testament, we'll play, we'll play out some things on Sundays. We'll move into... Daniel which will be a prophet during the exile, right? We'll go through Daniel and then we'll talk about the return from exile We'll talk about how we get there and how we get out of there in those books Our community groups have been reading along and using an app if you're unfamiliar called the read scripture app and it walks us through the whole Bible gives some kind of intro videos and theme videos and kind of helps you understand especially when you're working through something thousands of years ago in a very different world very different context So super helpful. Community groups have been that secondary piece of learning, if you will. If what we're doing on Sundays is this, like that additional piece, more background, more discussion, more personal application. How do we learn how to live this out? Community groups, I met with the community group leaders last Monday night, and we're going to pivot a little bit this year and take the book of Acts and split it up into some things we will do here on site, and some things we'll do in our community group. And this is really birthed out of this, and I know we all hope this, coming out of COVID. I hope that sentence is true, right? We hope this is kind of nearing the finish line. And of course, I'm not holding my breath, but that's what we're hoping for. What we learned in COVID, what we learned in the midst of this last, what's it been now, 16, 17 months, whatever it's been, Uh, is that the church isn't overwhelmingly healthy. When I say the church, I mean the church in America. This is irrelevant to the underground church in China or or the church in Africa or Latin America, very different setting, right? But the church in America showed some deep unhealth, right? That there was no unified kind of voice in the church, that everybody was everywhere. Um, That Christians inside of churches struggled with their faith in the absence of a building or a Sunday service. And so as we see this, the job that we have as a church is to, okay, so what do we learn from that? Like, how do we take that? And should another pandemic or should another emerge, some other crisis happen? How can we be healthier? And so we're going to do somewhere here in the next month or so, we'll get started uh, a deep, kind of a deep study of Acts. Looking at the church, okay, at what does it mean to be a church? What did the church do? What did the church look like? And, and, and not to imitate the church in Jerusalem or the church in Antioch or the church in Ephesus, but to learn what is God communicating to us about being the church. And so more to come on that, uh, as we even finish the Old Testament, we'll tie those things together uh, and then we will get into kind of a New Testament study starting around Christmas or New Year's, okay? Wisdom literature. I want to give you this, I'm i to put this up on the, on the screen today. Living with eternal values. Scripture consistently reminds us to circle back to things that are eternal and not things that are of this world. So Scripture constantly points us back to remind us that though this is all you and I can see, that this life, This is all we can see. And this is all we have tasted so far. That this is just a little piece of everything. Not only are we this little bit, and and, and Solomon speaks to that, this little dot on a timeline in all human history, but even all of human history is but this little piece of eternity. And the reason this is a common theme in Scripture is to remind us of what is important. If I looked at you and I said, okay, you're 13 years old now, or you're single now, or you know, your child's an infant now, or whatever, right? And I said, remember, this won't last. We would look to other things. And that's what Solomon is doing for us. He's reminding us that life is eternal, that you have a start date when you were conceived, right? And that you will live Forever. And the idea here is that in our faith, we are to live forever, starting now in God's economy, in God's kingdom, with God's practical wisdom for life. So Ecclesiastes 4, we're going to start in verse 13. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. Now, I just want you to look at that for a second. Do we even really believe that? Let me give you a modern day setting, right? So better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king. Okay, so the question is, do we actually believe what the Bible says here, right? Would you rather be young and poor or rich and a king, but a fool? Would you rather be young and poor and wise or rich and a king and a fool? Let me tell you that the answer lies within hip hop. (laughs) Right? Look at what we glorify in our culture. There are some young, rich, idiots, honestly, right? The answer also lies in pop culture, right? I think 20 years in, we're still all trying to figure out what skill set Paris Hilton owns, right? Other than being famous, I heard, yeah, okay, that's my point. Wealthy seems to be the goal. Rich and famous, look at social media, right? We've created a whole new category of vocation called influencers, right? Now look at those influencers, and for the most part, look at how they influence. Look at what trends, look at what's popular. There was a saying that was created in the late 1800s, I know most of you would think it would be new. I thought it was newer, just for the record. The phrase was coined, sex sells, right? I thought that came out of the 1950s or something like that. 1890s, I think it was. It's in the late 19th century. The idea that sexuality sells has been around for long over 100 years. Influencers would prove it today on social media, right? There's another category, clickbait, right? Things that will make you click on it to follow the link. They don't even have to be true to lead you to an article. Would we rather be young and poor and wise, or older, richer, or older, rich, and a fool? And I think though that when you phrase it that way, a lot of people are slow to answer. But if we just took out fool, everybody say old and rich, older and rich. I want rich. I want rich and powerful and a king. and I want that, and yet scripture says it's better to be young and wise and poor. Verse 14, for he, meaning this foolish king, is who he's talking about, for he went from prison to the throne. Though in his own kingdom he had been born poor, I saw all the living who move about under the sun along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people of whom he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this is also vanity and a striving after the wind, right? So you can go, and, and I want to I tailor this. Remember, we're talking about, whenever we talk about church, really, we're talking about the American church, unless we're talking about what Jesus created, which surpasses a geography or even a century or, a, or something like that. But when we talk about the church, remember, I mean us here, right? And we have people that are live streaming today from locally and out of state and but the church in America has some common themes to it, right? And when we look at this, you can go from, from prison to, to king, really. I mean, I, I'm proof, right? You, you can have a really bad start, you can struggle with addiction, you can go to prison, and yet you can still have a life, right? That God can transform someone. And, and in this setting, it's not even using God as the transformation, but that you can change, that you can grow up, that you can mature, that you can move on, that you can do things. And it says, listen, you can go from a prison to a throne, you can be poor, and then you can lead bunches of people. And, And the examples of people in especially hip hop and social media are just endless for me right now, that you can have influence, lead lots of people, speak, and lots of people will listen, but you don't have to be wise. You don't have to be mature. In fact, it seems to me that wisdom and maturity is almost a deficit to that today. That people are listening to some of the craziest things. So I want to put this on the screen today. So the American dream. In America, you can be anything you want to be. That's what we've been told. When we were born, we were little kids, and we go to school, and you can be anything you want to be. But in Christ, you're called to conform to the image and likeness of Christ, right? Our faith calls us to be conformed to Christ. But the American dream is you can be anything you want to be. Now, here's a question for you. Can being an American actually be in conflict with being a Christian? Right? And we were raised to hear that this was a Christian nation or, and I'm not even sure you can, there's a such thing as a Christian nation or a, uh, a Christian this or that, it's people, right? People. Now, when you collect them together, yes, I get you have a nation. And yes, I will say that we were built on Judeo-Christian values and some of our founders were Christians. So we can go that far, but our modern day culture that is very American is very different than Christian. It is very, and and let me rephrase that because that might not even be true. I think American and Christian look a lot alike, but America and Jesus do not. Is that a fair statement? So the American dream, building the American dream inside of you, inside of your children, may not be building the dream of Jesus for you, for your life, for your family, for your children. So what does Solomon provide for us As a way out of that so here's what he says ecclesiastes 5 verse 1 he says guard your steps when you go to the house of god to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools for they do not know that they are doing evil so solomon's answer is always going to be our faith he parses out life into two categories categories under the sun meaning anything that happens in this world and he also gives us Life under heaven what it means to live inside of our faith and so he gives us two categories of life so Solomon is going to talk about how all the worldly pursuits being a king being rich being influential being over people being this being that ascending to the top of the org chart of whatever it is that you do there's that and then there's the futility of that the like chasing after the wind part of that right? Be that your American dream, your wealth, you know, your pleasure, your sexuality, your identity, your whatever, your sense of justice, you fill in the blanks. And the futility of chasing that and how you will never catch it, like chasing the wind, you will never achieve it. And he will always contrast that with living a life under heaven or living a life of faith surrendered to God. So the, if you would, there's chasing anything else versus chasing God, if you will. Verse two, be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, but you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. So first, guard your steps when you go into the house of God. So he's speaking about kind of this setting. Now, very different, right? You have the, the temple with Solomon that he had, he had overseen the building of, right? And he got to watch God come down and fill the presence of the temple. He was able to fulfill his father, David's dream. And there was this sense of God dwelling in the midst of the people from the tabernacle all the way back in Exodus to the temple, right? And then we know that Jesus dies on the cross. And as he gives up his life, we know that the veil in the temple is torn from top to bottom, releasing the presence of god out to people in christ we we know that right when we talk about the house of god we don't just chalk it off as an old testament thing we understand it in light of coming to church right our house of god if you will know this is not the only place god resides there's no cloud over the top of it right now because god is here we know that we are a bit of that right that we are temples filled with god's spirit well, this is the house of God's people, too. As we gather together, right? Jesus discerns the difference between Christ in you, the Spirit in you, and the difference of when you gather. When there are two or three gathered, he says, there I am in the midst of you. There's a, there's a difference from Christ in you to also Christ in the midst of you. There, there is something different as we gather, right? We're coming up this long, pro- protracted season of COVID, and, and what was once the problem is getting everybody online, which by the way, this church, and I, I, I take zero credit for this, this church pivoted on the first Sunday within 48 hours and everybody got online. Everything from, from grandkids helping people get online right, or their sons or you know, whatever, right? And helping them do that to, to people just kind of getting the word out and calling people. It was really good, this really amazing pivot, which we already had live stream in place, Right. But the big thing was, okay, we're gonna do this for three weeks, flatten the curve, all those things we talked about and were told and didn't quite materialize, right? To now, today, half our church will be at home, half will be here, and that's in rough numbers, right? Some are distant, but most are local. And we've gone from this thing that nobody wanted to do to now it's hard to get everybody back. Let me say if there's one reason to hear this today, that there is a difference when we gather that Christ says, I'm in the midst of you. There's something special about the gathered people. That doesn't just have to be on a Sunday here in church, but that is a part of it. So if you're online, we'd love to have you, right? There's reasons to stay home, but still there are reasons to be here. So he says, be not rash with your mouth, guard your steps. When you walk into the gathering of God's people might be a different way to say it, right? Let your words be few, your words today. Did you come in with this idea of what you thought today was about? Or did you come in with an open heart, right? With, with ears wide open to hear from God. And let me say it another way. Did you come in open to hearing where you might be out of line, out of step with God, or did you just come in hoping to hear how God loves you and nothing must change, right? That's kind of a way to look at it today. Let our words be few. Let, let our plans and our dreams be smaller. And let's hear from God. Guard your steps when you come into the household. Or do you show up with a right heart? And do you show up with ears open? Or do you come in with kind of your idea, right? And I know out of the how many ever here right now, I know 10 of you are sitting there going, like, is he talking directly to me? <laughs> Yes. No. uh, Yeah, I know. I, I waited for you to point at him. That was nice. All right. So yeah, no, God is. I'm not. I have no idea. But we all have to hear that. You think it's hard to be you listening to it? Try and be the guy who has to say it and deal with this stuff all week, right? You're like, oh, God's all week. Like, hey, see how far out you are, dude? Yeah, I know. Verse three, for a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. Consider how much time and energy and words and be it journaling or whatever you might do, put together your dream, right? How much do we ask God, God, what would you do with me? Where would you have me, what would you have me do? And if we're honest, we're all afraid that he's gonna call us to be Teresa of Calcutta, right? He's gonna call us to a life of sacrifice and poverty. By the way, Mother Teresa would tell you best life she ever lived, right? Only life she ever lived, I know what I said, sorry. She lived a great life, that was my point. We're afraid of what that might be. And so we fill it with our dreams and we don't ask God what his plans are. So here's another challenge, what about our children's? What about the plans of our kids? Are we trying to shape them into the American dream? Are we making sure that their athletic ability is so stellar that they can afford the college you can afford to send them to so that they can do the career that will achieve the American dream? Or do we sit back and ask God, okay, God, what would you have us do? Where would you have us go? What what dreams are we actually building? Verse four, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow and that you should vow and not pay very cultural here Judaism had a ton of vows not a ton There are a lot of ways where you could make a, a commitment to God short-term long-term the vow of the Nazarite is the most common one we read about in Scripture uh, we see that Old Testament and New Testament where people would come under a vow for a season the season could be short. the season could be long it could be lifelong it could be anything right Samson was that example of the Nazarite vow lifelong right Paul and Timothy come under a vow in the book of Acts when they return into Jerusalem. Things happen like this. So it's very cultural when people would hear that they would know what we're talking about. It's almost like, I was trying to think of a modern day equivalent, and with the exception of monastic vows or uh, vows of a priesthood or something like that, with, with the exception of that, it's kind of like that. Uh, the traditional church might get together the beginning of the year, the end of the year, and kind of put forward the budget, and like, here's where we're headed, and we're taking this bump, this increase this year as a step of faith, and ask for kind of a giving commitment from everybody. If you've been around the church long enough to experience that, maybe you've kind of committed to a giving uh, amount for that year or whatever. It's like taking that step of faith and saying, hey, I'm going to do this for my faith, or I'm going to do this for God, I'm going to do this even for the church, and he's saying, but then you don't do it, right? And so as he talks about making your commitments, for us, our culture, we don't do a lot of that. Not that they're bad or good. We just we, have, we don't have a lot of that. But it's almost like when you were baptized, what is it you were saying you were going to do? That you were going to follow Jesus, right? If you come and commit to a church, what does that mean? That you're going to attend on Sundays, you're going to belong to a community group that you're going to give financially serve somewhere that you're going to live a lifestyle that is outward and focused towards the lost like those are the five things we talk about being committed to that's as close as we're going to get to this that if you're committed be committed better to better to not be committed right than to not live up to your commitment that you've made verse six Let not your mouth lead you into sin. Do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear, right? There's this warning of, hey, don't let your dreams crowd out God, right? Don't let your words be so many and your ears not hear what God is leading you to. Verse 8. But if you see in a province the oppression of the poor... And the violation of justice and righteousness do not be amazed at the matter for a high official is watched by a higher and there was yet a higher ones over them but this is gained for a land in every way a king committed to cultivated fields i was listening as we were reading as lily was reading earlier Um, and solomon is king over the most powerful nation at the time he's the wealthiest man on the planet The most authority on the planet resides in Solomon, our author, while he's writing this. And throughout his reign, he inherits from David the most powerful kingdom. He inherits from David, his father, the most influence on the planet at the time. And he says this, and he talks about justice a lot. But he says, and behold, this is back in verse 1. I was listening to Lily read it earlier. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors was power and there was no one to comfort them. Solomon talks a lot about justice and in many ways he reminds us, hey, justice can't be your pursuit. But he also says it's a tragedy when people with power exert it in ways that are unfair, that oppress others. And there's a million ways we could play that out. But Solomon also reminds us, hey, listen, from the guy who has all the power and all the authority and all that, I also know I can't fix it all. And we can't make justice our idol, just like we can't make wealth or even righteousness. He says, because we're flawed. He doesn't mean don't be just, don't desire to see justice. Just like he wouldn't say, don't desire a fair, a good, a wealthy income, any of those things, right? Don't put them in the wrong place, is what he's saying. Don't make the thing you champion be wealth. Don't make the thing you champion be justice. Don't even make the thing you champion be family. Make it God. And let God trickle into all those other things, into your family, into your business, into justice, into your community. Verse 10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor will he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? The reality is there's never enough money, right? The famous quote, John D. Rockefeller, how much money when asked, who was a gazillionaire of his day, right? Well, how much money is enough money? And his answer was from one of the wealthiest men on the planet, just a little bit more. So if a guy with all the money, like Solomon, was the wealthiest man alive, and if, a and if guy even in America, John D. Rockefeller, right, if they can tell you, listen, there's never enough, then maybe we kind of get that out of the way and just admit, okay, so that's not fulfilling, right? Verse 12, sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Lots of money will keep you up at night. Hard work will give you a good night's rest. That's what he's saying. I have a friend who, uh, let's just say, this is a few years back. I was, he's uh, uh, a guy I stayed with. He lives up in Pebble Beach for like where the big golf course is and, and lots of golf courses. But his house was for sale that I was in, it was for sale for four and a half million. It's a tax bracket I will never understand, right? And his niche in Pebble Beach. For his house, it was for sale because there was other houses for sale, right? His niche was, and it comes with a Ferrari in the garage. That was his uniqueness of his home. So just needless to say, this is a tax bracket, I'm never going to understand, right? He's an amazing man, loves Jesus, owns a large company, employs hundreds of people. And here's what I can tell you. In an economy that was struggling and kind of going back and forth, the guy with the the house for sale with a Ferrari in it. Uh, And and by the way, the other cars he drove weren't too bad either. Those that that guy was trying to keep things afloat so he could afford to pay his people because he felt like they were family. And I was listening to him and just imagining kind of take me. Then you shrink it all down to like my size. Right. And, and, and my life and, and then to hear him and just understand like, well, with a lot more come a lot more responsibilities and and pressures and, and, you know, the great theologian, Peter Parker's uncle, uh, right? With much power comes much responsibility. That's Spider-Man's uncle. All right. So, and that's what he's saying. Listen, go to work, do your job, go home, go to sleep. Lots more doesn't make it any better. Sweet is the sleep. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, verse 12. But the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. This is about us and who we are. That there is something insatiable inside of us that is broken, right? That God created humanity not to chase after wealth or power or uh, prestige or sexuality or education or this or that or anything else, that He created us to be worshippers of Him. That our lives would be given over to pursuing God. That that the only thing we would chase and strive after would be more of God and he would be there to be found. It wouldn't be this hard pursuit that he would be right there. And then he gave us kind of the framework as humanity. Like, listen, then here's the deal. As long as you just choose me, you're good. But when you begin to choose you, you break the system. And we all know the story. Sin enters into human history and it breaks us. And that happened with our ancient parents long, long before us, and we've inherited it. And now, you and I, we all know better, and especially, I would say this, if you're in Christ, you should know better than the next guy how broken we are. If you're a Christian, you should understand how far away from what we should be that we are. And so not only are we far away, but we add to the sin in the world, so we continue to break the system Again, even as Christians, even for those who are forgiven. And so there's this insatiable desire, this sin that is passed on and, and separates us from God. And, and as, as God sees that, that never-ending pursuit of worthless things, God says they'll never be able to turn the corner and come back. And so instead of calling them back to me, I will go to them. And then the Son of God, right? Jesus the second person of the Trinity, puts on human flesh and comes to us, and he lives a life of very little, to be honest, very simple, very humble circumstances, and he does so and lives and daily pursues God and shows us, listen, this can be a life that is fulfilling. In fact, everything else won't be. No rules there. You you can't own a home or get wealthy or, or have a good education or have a big family. Not that. Just look at what the focus is that the focus is always on God. So Jesus comes and lives that life and then trades his life for ours, goes to the cross and dies to cover our sins. That in Christ, our sin, our choosing of ourselves can be forgiven and then we can be restored to God. And then in Jesus' resurrection, we can be given new life and empowerment, the very thing we were talking about earlier, that spirit inside of us to transform us and, and keep us united to God. And to teach us that, listen, Your inclinations inside of you, your sinful flesh will always lead you to try and pursue something else. It will always draw you away to the world. It will always tell you that what we can see right now is what matters. But God will always remind us, no, this is but a dot, a drop in the ocean. This is is nothing compared to forever. Let me teach you how to live this way now. In Genesis 3, it says this, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. If sin didn't look good, we wouldn't do it. If we didn't think money would give us something we don't have, we wouldn't give our time to it, right? If we didn't think this one more thing would be it, If it didn't look good, if we didn't think it held something for us, we wouldn't chase it. Wisdom through Solomon is here to tell us, listen, I had it all and there's nothing there. That I chased all these things and there's nothing at the end of those roads. God alone is fulfilling. Verse 13, there was a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture and he is the father of a son but he has nothing in his hand listen his riches were kept by their owner to his hurt there's tons of parables in every culture every community has them i think of the uh there's the indian parable uh hindu parable of the greedy monkey where the monkey goes outside and there's this this uh clay jar filled with Uh, these grains that the monkey likes to eat. And and so the monkey puts both hands in and he grabs. And all of a sudden as he grabs, now now it's too small to get his hands back out of the pot. Right? You've heard the dragon's pearl. I was trying to find the, they're trying to figure out what it was. It was like rush hour two with the, the story of the dragon. If you're old enough to remember Jackie Chan's movie, right? So there's always this sense that our greed is what captures us. If the monkey would let go, his hands would come right back out. That's the story of the parable. What greed keeps him there and he starves to death. So goes the story. There's nothing there. And then we chase this to our own detriment. Verse 15, he came from his mother's womb he shall go again as he came from his mother's womb he shall, he shall go again, naked as he came he shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil, just as he came so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats darkness, much vexation and sickness and anger. Solomon reminds us, there's an inescapable truth that we will all die. You are going to die, I'm going to die. Right? We're all going to die. Unless Jesus returns first, which is unlikely, it could happen. But so far, everybody before us died. Chances are we'll die. And when we do, Nothing that we've created, nothing that we've added, nothing that we have strived for, other than God, will remain. Here's a note for you. Death is a reality for us all. Scripture constantly reminds us that we will die, not for fear of hell, but about perspective on life. This life doesn't last, and it isn't worth the focus that we give it. This life, this world, the things under the sun, as Solomon would say, aren't worth the energy we give them. Our life under heaven, our faith, and the things that God gives us, our family, our church, our things like that, and an honest day's work, those things are worth it, only if we're pursuing God. Even those things, if we're pursuing them instead of God, even those things are unhealthy. Solomon keeps reminding us with this eternal perspective. Verse 18, Behold what I've seen to be good and fitting, is to eat and drink and find enjoyment and toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot, everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them, to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God, for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Whether you're wealthy or broke. Solomon says this, listen, enjoy it. Enjoy where you are. Enjoy what God has given you. There's a lesson here on contentment, how to be content with what we have rather than discontent about what we do not have. Ecclesiastes 6, there is an evil that I've seen under the sun, verse 1, that lies heavy on mankind. Verse 2, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil if you had everything you wanted, do you really think it'd be enough? I know we know the answer is no, and yet we still live as if that thing, whatever it is, right? And there's some hard ones. I, I, women that are struggling to have children, like if I could just have a child, I think of Hannah, right at the beginning of 1st and 2nd Samuel, at the beginning of 1st Samuel, like, I, there's some heartbreaking, heart-wrenching stories. And then there's some just absolutely ridiculous ones if I could just have a supercar right I mean like whatever but there's there's real life in here too right I can't afford to feed my family well that's different right This still can't be your idol your pursuit but it's right to want to feed your family right Proverbs 22 or 23 excuse me says this do not toil to acquire wealth be discerning enough to des- to desist when your eyes light on it, it is gone, for suddenly it sprouts wings flying like an eagle toward heaven. Wealth can't be what you chase. Power can't be what you chase. Right? Influence can't be what you chase. More followers on social media can't be what you chase, because there will be never be enough. Verse 3, if a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so the days of his years are many, but a soul is not satisfied with life's good things, he... Also has no burial. I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. That's brutal. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness his name is covered. Moreover, it has not been seen the sun or known any. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything yet. It finds rest rather than he, even though he should live a thousand years twice over, but enjoy no good. Do not all go to the one place? Do we not all go back to the grave, right? And do we not all go back? naked you're born naked you return no matter what you do in the middle you don't end up with any more as the bumper sticker you know he who dies with the most toys wins is not true he who dies with the most toys has someone else enjoy them that's what solomon says someone who didn't work for them may not appreciate them and you still go naked back to the grave verse 7 all the toil of a man is for his mouth and yet his appetite is not satisfied it reminds us just like breakfast this morning may have made you full if you had breakfast right but you'll be hungry again by lunch that striving after anything other than god will never satisfy it is never going to be enough like an appetite it is insatiable verse 8 for what advantage has the wise man over the fool and what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. We talked about early in, I think it was in chapter 1, contrasting sight with hunger. Hunger is this thing that you can satisfy it for a minute, right? But then it'll come back to you. But sight is this thing you'll never see enough, right? To where... You're like, okay, cool. I'm done with my eyes, right? But for most of us, it's not like we're trying to see more. I went to the eye doctor not long ago, I'm trying to see better, but not more, right? I just want to see, right? We enjoy seeing, and people that lose their sight or are born without their sight, right? They long for that sight. What sight is that? Thing, that contrast he gives. That is human. It's it's in this world. It's of this flesh, and yet it's often. Not seen as like the appetite of the stomach that is insatiable. I want to close it with some words from Jesus. Matthew 5, Jesus says this Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. He said, Blessed are you when you don't derive all your joy and fulfillment here in this world, right? When you mourn, when you long for more, when you mourn because you know this place is broken and that I wish it were better and I want to see people better. I want to see people healed and and redeemed and restored to God. And blessed are you who mourn because you'll be comforted. Blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are you when you pursue God and God alone because you will receive from God. He also says this in Matthew six: "But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you." Here's a, a reality that Jesus gives us: when you chase after God, everything else gets in line, if you will. And then, okay, so if you're gonna then pursue God, it's not pursue God so you can be wealthy. You're pursuing God to pursue God. But God seems to provide what you need. It may not be wealthy. That's okay. It may not even be what you ask for but it will be the best for you. Seek first his righteousness, right? His kingdom, his righteousness. And everything else will be added to you. The things you need will be given to you if your eye is on the right thing, right? It's lifting your eye off those little lines that are hard to read and going, oh, there's a big E right there on the top of the eye chart. And that big E is God, that we keep our eyes on God. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. You have not only given us this word from before the beginning of time, before we were ever alive, you gave us how to live. And then you entered into our story and you lived it out that we could see it with flesh on, that we could understand what it looks like to live a life that glorifies God and you did it without many of the things that we long for. You did it with relatively little money with little emphasis on the things of this world, and yet with all kinds of emphasis on eternity. And then you even sacrifice and lay down everything for us so that we can understand your teachings when you say blessed are those who mourn because they will be comforted. Blessed are you who are poor in the spirit, who seek for justice and righteousness. And then you remind us, seek first the kingdom pursue God and the values that, that God has given us. And he promised that all the things that we need will be added to us that you will provide. That your gospel, that your life and your death, your resurrection, the, the spirit given to us is enough for us. That's enough to overcome our sin and our problems and our struggles and our longings for this world. And it's enough to satisfy us here and now. And it is for sure enough to get us to stand before God blameless as we will all die and all stand. So Jesus, let us live in you. Let us live for you and let us live by you. It's in your name we pray, amen.